Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. 295. Somebody, not me, came up with that number. They counted the questions in the four Gospels that Jesus asks. 295, that's how many he asks. That's a lot of questions in such a small space. 295 questions. Now, we're finding out that when Jesus asked questions, he didn't use them as a teaching technique. He didn't use them as a way to pull you in to the discussion. He didn't use them as a way to feel out and figure out how much do you know, how little do you know on the topic. He didn't use them for icebreakers. We sometimes do that with questions. He didn't use them for any of those reasons. But questions in the hands of Jesus Christ are like scalpels in the hands of very skilled surgeons. And when he asks the questions, he's using them to cut through layers of stuff in our life, misunderstanding, wrong ideas, hurt feelings. He's using those questions to cut through the layers of things in our lives and to peel it back so that we can be healed. Now, this is Resurrection Day. Hallelujah. This is the day. It's so significant, such a significant day is the resurrection day that the earliest believers were told not to celebrate it just once a year. It's too big for that. And they were given different instructions about this day than they were any other day. They were told to gather every week and remember the resurrection. And so we gather on Sunday, the first day of the week, the same day that he rose from the dead. We gather on Sunday not to put a hole in anybody's weekend plans. We gather for a different reason entirely. This, this is the only event that we're to gather and celebrate 52 times a year. It's that big a deal, the resurrection of Christ. You see, we're not a, we're not a social club. That's not what the church is. It's not a social club that's formed for the benefit of the members now, you will often hear the pitch made, come to church, and you'll get something out of it. Or, or, come to church, it is in some way good for you, and you will get something out of it, and it is good for you. But that's an exercise in missing the point. Because this is not for us. This is not for us, and it's unlike some other very worthy organiza organizations where you, you, you can't make up an absence at worship by doing some kind of a service project because this isn't done for me and it's not done for you. What we do this for is for an audience of one because he is alive and he is well and he's present with us. That's why we gather and celebrate the resurrection of Christ not once a year but 52 times a year. The resurrection is so vital. It's so important. 52 times a year. And the word says that it is the center of all of human history. 
That everything revolves around the resurrection of Christ and that without it, we are the most miserable of fools that have ever lived if it never took place. Early on when I was a young man, before I was a Christian, I saw the importance of Jesus rising from the dead. I had read the New Testament. I was familiar with the story of Easter, of the resurrection. I knew that story. My problem with this whole thing was it's too good to be true. That God would become man, a man-God, to come to earth and to pay for my sins so that I could live. That was a good story, but it was too good to be true. And if it's too good to be true, to my way of thinking, it wasn't true. About that same time, somebody gave me a book, or I picked up a book. The title of it is, Why I Am Not a Christian. It's by a, a British philosopher. I picked it up, and I looked at the title, Why I'm Not a Christian, and I thought, hmm, I'm not a Christian. wonder why he's not a Christian. And so I began to read it. But as I read it, I got the feeling that his arguments for why he's not a Christian weren't nearly strong enough. I looked through that book. I still have it the other day, and I've got notes and questions and underlines and things that I thought weren't quite right. But I did notice in his discussion of why he's not a Christian that for him at least the resurrection was very important. And he went to great lengths to try and prove that the resurrection of Christ had never taken place. And so I knew it was central. I knew it was important. And shortly after that, somebody else gave me a book called The Search for the Twelve Apostles. I've still got it. In fact, my mother later on knew it was such an important book to me that she covered it in plastic so it wouldn't deteriorate. The Search for the Twelve Apostles is a series of records, historical records, court records from the Roman era talking about what had happened to the 12 apostles, the original 12. And I found that all of them died a horrible death, martyr's death. Some of them were shot through with arrows. Some were, their skin was peeled off while they were alive and they were allowed to roast in the sun. Others were boiled, others were burned. But they all died a horrible death and they all died according to the people that did not like them, to their accusers, they all died saying the same thing, we saw what we saw, and we say Jesus rose from the dead, and they would not back off of that story. I remember putting that book down, and I noticed that one of them died in India, and one died in Syria, and one died in Spain, and one died in Rome, and, and in those days, there were no phones. There was no fast communication, and I realized that they had all died in isolation, saying Jesus rose from the dead. They died for that, but they died in isolation. In other words, the man dying in India, he could have just as easily said, oh, no, 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 we made it up. It's all a story. It's all a ruse, a hoax. And the man in Rome never would have known that. The man in Syria, when they got ready to burn him alive, he could have said, no, no, we, we, we masterminded this great scheme to fool everybody and make a bunch of money. And the fellows in Spain never would have gotten that message. They all died saying they saw Jesus rise from the dead and they died in isolation. And I remember thinking those thoughts and I put that book down and I said the story that's too good to be true, it's got to be true. Jesus did rise from the dead. It's true. There's evidence outside the Bible. There's evidence inside the Bible. 
Go home today and read the, the resurrection story for yourself. There's a part in there where the grave clothes of Christ tell you a tale. Some of the disciples came rushing into that empty tomb. They heard that he was gone. And they couldn't compute it all. It all didn't make sense, and they had to see for themselves. And when they looked in, they saw the grave clothes of Christ there. And when they went into that tomb, they did not believe Jesus had risen from the dead. But when they left that tomb, they believed he rose from the dead. And the reason is those grave clothes told them a tale. What they saw was the grave clothes still in the shape of a body wound round. But they were collapsed. He had shot through them somehow. They weren't unwound and laying in a pile. And they believed. So there's evidence inside the story. There's evidence outside the story. The reaction of his followers, that tells you a story too. And that brings us to Luke 24. You may want to turn there. Luke 24, his last chapter in his gospel and there's a question in there because we're looking at questions these days. We've already looked at several. Jesus asked questions like, why do you worry? Jesus asked questions like, do you believe I can do this? Jesus asked questions like, why do you look at the speck in somebody else's eye? And he asks a question in this story, only this time he's risen when he asks this question. He's already risen from the dead that morning. And there are two of his followers, disciples, and they think it's a good time to get out of town. Because the fear among the followers of Jesus is they crucified him, we're next. And so some of them had locked themselves and barricaded doors to hide from the authorities. But these two fellows on resurrection day now, three days after the crucifixion, they decide it's time to get out of town. And so they decide to go to a nearby village of Emmaus. And as they're walking along, talking to themselves about the things they've experienced over the last several days, Christ dying on the cross, all of their hope now is gone. As they're getting out of town, not unlike rats jumping from a sinking ship, suddenly Jesus comes to them. The way the Bible says it is, he runs up to them. They're walking along, and he, he hurries up to approach them. Now, guilt by association is their fear. They are associated with Jesus. They have been seen with Jesus. They are followers with Jesus. They are familiar with him. They've been seen with him, and so they're afraid that their association with him will render them guilty too, so that's why they're getting out of town. But because they fear guilt by association, that tells you that they knew him well enough before the cross, but now as he approaches them, they don't recognize him. How is that? How is it that they don't see who he is? What was the change that caused them not to see Christ as he stood there in front of them, walking with them? Is the change in him or is the change in them? I say the change was in them. The perplexity, the, the mind numbness, the confusion, the inability to believe their own eyes, that had started early in the morning when the first people had looked into the empty tomb and they could not process what they were seeing. And they were perplexed. And it continued throughout the day. And now in the evening, as they're getting out of town, 
They're perplexed and they're confused and they can't see what's going on around them. And none of it makes any sense and their brains are numbed by the events that they witnessed. And that sense of perplexity for them, it's overwhelmed them to the point that they're blinded and they can't see the Savior when He's standing in front of them. He walks along with them and and he asked them, what were you talking about? And they said, are you the only one in Israel that is unaware of what's happened these last few days? And they rehearsed to him what Jesus has gone through, not knowing he's there. When he had first approached them, he asked them what they were talking about, and they were embarrassed, and they put their face to the ground, and they wouldn't speak, and he had to coax it out of them, and they finally told him, the events that had taken place that caused them to leave town and caused them to be downcast and despondent and depressed and without hope. So he's walking along and he's talking with them that way. And they tell him that some of our, our women, they went to the tomb this morning and they claim that it's empty, but we, we don't know. Pick the story up in verse 25 of Luke 24. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? They couldn't understand why their friend, why their Messiah had suffered. And he says it's necessary. And then he takes them on a short tutorial as they walk. And he takes them through the scripture, the Hebrew Bible beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, and they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. They probably went to some kind of a, an inn or a roadside stop. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it, He's done that before, hasn't he? And he began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened. And then they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? While he was explaining the scriptures to us. There's a question buried in that. They're overpowered. They're blinded. They can't see the Savior. They're blinded by their confusion. But there's a question in verse 17. When he initially approaches them, he says, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking along? In other words, what are you fellows talking about? What are you talking about? Now we know from the discussion that follows that he wasn't asking them because he needed to know the answer. Anytime Jesus asks a question, it's never because he needs information. He doesn't need to know the answers. But he asks them, what were you talking about? He already knew. The questions Jesus asks people in this book are questions that he can ask any of us. They're universal that way, the questions of Jesus. And you might say, oh, he's, he's never asked me what I'm talking about. I've never heard him put that question to me. There may have been acid 
gossip that was on your tongue. You were in the middle of tearing somebody else apart with your words. Or maybe it was a lie, big or small. Or maybe you were talking and it was an exaggeration that was making you look better or smarter or more holy than you are. He's never asked me what I was talking about. He doesn't have to ask. He knows. In fact, a good test of what we do talk about is could I talk this over with Jesus the way I'm talking now? Could, could he be included in this conversation? Because i got a newsflash for you. He already is. So the question is a good one. What should we talk about then? I think we should talk about things that we mean. I remember years ago when I was a brand new Christian, there was a lady in our church, Sister Flora. I'm sure she loved Jesus a whole lot. But when you saw Sister Flora coming, you knew what you were going to get. You were going to get a rundown of her most recent gory visit to the dentist. She was going to give you a blow-by-blow of every detail, every stitch, and you would begin after a while to feel those stitches yourself. Of the most recent root canal that had gotten botched, or the Novocaine that didn't work, or the way the dentist would slice through her gums, and, and all of the details that went along with Sister Flora's dental agonies, the abscesses, the root canals, the life-saving emergency surgery on her gums, all the rest of it, you were going to get every detail. To tell you the truth, it made you want to run and hide when you saw her coming. But that's what she talked about. You know, there are other things to talk about than our woes. There are other things in life that we can talk about besides our troubles and our reversals and our complaints and how somebody done us wrong. There are other things to talk about in life. The danger when we talk so much about our troubles, our problems, our woe-is-me things, the danger is that our troubles will one day become who we are. And when that happens, that's a messy waste of life. There are better things to talk about. Talk about things you mean. When couples come and they want to get married, I tell them it's time then, before we do that, to go through a little marriage counseling. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a therapist. But I do know a little bit about communication, so that's usually what we talk about. And we talk about things that I call communication circuit jammers. Things that you can say to one another that will shut communication down. Words like never and always. You never do this. You always do this. That will shut it down. Things like, how stupid can you be? <laughs> that will shut communication down. But one of the big communication circuit jammers with couples with anybody one of the greatest circuit jammers is to say things that you don't really mean. It fouls up the works when we do that. It, it, it bogs down the machinery of communication if there is any bit of dishonesty in how we're talking to one another. So we need to avoid it by saying only things that we mean. And by saying meaningful things, you'll avoid it.
Well, these people, these two men, they're getting out of town. They want to get out of town. They probably wanted to get out of town on the day Jesus died, three days earlier, but they couldn't because there were travel restrictions. They had a thing called a Sabbath day's journey. It was a law, and you couldn't violate it. A Sabbath day's journey, for some weird reason, was three-fifths of a mile. That's all the farther you could go on a Sabbath day. The Sabbath was that Saturday, the day before this one. And so they could not travel. They could not really get out of town. Three-fifths of a mile, you couldn't hardly get to the edge of town. And so they had to wait because of the travel Restriction until this day, the first day. And they're going to a village that's seven miles away. It's on the same day, verse 13, the same day, which is the first day of verse 1 of this chapter, which is the same day as the tomb episode. That's the day that they're getting out of town. And there are two of them. Two of them. And that refers to some disciples. Now these were not part of the original 12. We're not talking about Andrew or Simon Peter. We're not talking about James or John, the original 12. We're talking about two disciples, two followers of Jesus, and one of them is named Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other. But we do know that they had heard the reports of the women who had visited the tomb early in the morning. And their report was, we don't know what's happened, but the tomb is empty and Jesus is not there. And then later on in the day, one of the women saw Jesus and they heard that report, but they're not sure they believe that report. We know they had heard the reports of the ladies, and we do know that they were familiar with a prediction that Jesus had made, that on day number three, this particular day, some unknown things were going to happen. They knew those things. But they had given up hope. When they watched him die on the cross, the Bible says that he was crushed for our sins on the cross. And not only was his body crushed before their eyes, but their hopes and their aspirations and their life with Christ, that was all crushed too. And so it says their faces are downcast. They're looking at the ground. Their hopes have been crushed on the cross. So what are they talking about as they walk along that day? They were talking discouragement. They were talking defeat. They were talking about things not working out. You know what? The topics that we choose to talk about, they, they can feed an awful dread and fear inside of us. They really can. The things we talk about, if we're not careful, they can put us on a cycle that's hard to break. It's hard to break. Many people who call themselves followers of Christ, and I only say this because I've got eyes in my head, but many Christians live dull lives. They live half-lives. They live sad lives. And it's because of speech problems. And I'm not talking about a stammer. And I'm not talking about having trouble pronouncing your THs. But it's because of the things they spend so much time talking about. It's too negative. It's too negative, especially when you realize that Jesus does for us every single day what he did for these two men on this day. While they rehearse all of the tragedies and all of the bad news, and it's on a loop that just keeps playing over and over, 
He bursts in on them. And he draws near to them. And what he did for them that day, he does for us every day, which means there's no reason for our discussion to be so negative because Jesus is so near, you see. He's so near. He runs up and he catches them. In their negative track, he catches them. What are you talking about? If he burst in on you at random times this week or last week with that same question, what are you talking about? Would you have to do what they did? Would you have to look at the ground? It says they were speechless. They stood still. They stopped in their tracks with their faces downcast, looking sad, some of the versions say. When, when Israel moved into the promised land centuries before, one of the first things they were instructed by God to do was pick you out two mountains, two twin mountains. And one of them they named blessing and one they named cursing. Now we can choose to live on one mountain or the other. We can choose to live on the mountain of blessing or we can choose to live on the mountain of cursing. And we live in a time that is absolutely mad right now. We live in a time of madness when words have been sucked dry of their meaning. But words do mean things. And they are powerful. And to a large extent, what we talk about determines will we live a life of blessing or will we live a life of cursing? It was the little girl, a grade school girl by the name of Ellen. Ellen was miserable in school because she was teased all the time. School was a chore for her, not because she was a bad student, but because she had a cleft palate, the kids would always comment on it. And they would make fun of her, and they teased her for her misshapen lip and her crooked nose and, and the way sometimes her speech was a little bit garbled. They made fun of it to the point that because they'd done that so much, Ellen was convinced that nobody but family would ever love her. Until she entered Mrs. Leonard's class. All the kids liked Mrs. Leonard. She had a round face. And the kids always talked about how shiny her hair was. And they liked her. Children liked Mrs. Leonard, but Ellen grew to love Mrs. Leonard because she always had a smile and a kind word for her. This was back in the years, and there are people here that can remember, I can, but sometimes the teachers had to give you a hearing test. I don't know how good a test it was. But you would walk into the room. You would be out in the hall lined up. And she would call you one at a time. And you would come into the room. And you had to cover one ear. And, and part of the hearing test was what they called the whisper test. And she would whisper something. And you had to repeat it back or answer it. Well, Ellen had a hearing problem in one ear, too, but she didn't want anybody to know because then they would make fun of that, too. So when she came in, she was very careful to turn her good ear toward the teacher and cover her bad ear. She was pretty sure she would be able to pass the whisper test 
even if she didn't hear it really well, because usually the teacher asks simple questions like, what color is the sky and, and is the sun bright or something like that. But when it was Ellen's turn and she covered her ear and the teacher began to whisper what the teacher said, her words completely changed her life. Mrs. Leonard whispered to her, I wish you were my little girl. Changed her life. Words have the power to do that, you see. Your words can be pleasant words. Your words can lift people. Your words can encourage. Your words can bring joy. Your words can have a lightness to them. Or, or, or there will be a heaviness to them. Which will it be? What are people going to hear coming out of your mouth? What are, you, what are you talking about? Talk about things you mean. Talk about meaningful things. And if these fellows are any indicator, we should probably talk about what's burning inside of you, too. As they're walking along, Jesus explains things to them, and it all begins to click with them. And then, and then when he sits down for the meal and prays and disappears, the thing that's in their mind is, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked to us in the way? So we should do like that. We, we should talk about what's burning inside of us. There's a lady who's a member of our church. She's not here today. I wish she were. But she's had life just cave in on her. And I contacted her a week or so ago. Contacted her via text just to check on her, see how she was doing. And she sent back a text that I saved. And part of it says... I want to be back with his arms around me. That's what was burning in her. I want to be back to the place where Christ's arms are around me. Did not our hearts burn within us, they said. What's burning in you? Talk about that. People will listen to that. Well, What if nothing's burning in you? then do whatever you've got to do to light that fire on the altar, a fire that will never go out. Get alone with God. And if you have to, get brutal with yourself about the Word. Grab yourself by the neck and say, you're going to read the Word every day. If it kills me, you're going to do that. And then don't let up on yourself. Fast, just to get your own attention. Go without food. Tell yourself, if you won't start honoring God with your finances, then I'm going to make you wear those socks with a hole in until you do. Get brutal. Do whatever you've got to do to get that fire back so that something's burning inside of you. You may have to tell yourself, if you, if you keep missing church for flimsy reasons, then listen, buddy, it's one meal per day for you and no TV. Now that sounds childish, doesn't it? to treat ourselves that way. But we act like children, don't we? God is in us. And God in us is all about growing up and it's all about maturity. 
So make sure your relationship with Christ is not some kind of a tame, dull affair, not some kind of a ho-hum thing. Make sure it's something that burns inside of you and you fuel it continually. Let that thing burn inside of you. And then around you, give people the gift of hearing what is burning inside of you. Talk about that. What else are you going to talk about? Politics? Really? This year? (laughs) Now, there is a certain amount of friendly chatter that greases the wheels of the social contract, I guess. Ball games, interests, family, of course. You should talk about family, especially if you have brilliant grandchildren. You should talk about that. But when you really talk, what is it you talk about? I have an older friend. He's, he's quite older. He's not connected to our church. He'll, he'll never attend here. In fact, he, he doesn't have a great deal of time left, I don't think. But I like to go and spend time with him. And you know why? Because he doesn't talk about little things. He always talks about big things. And sometimes I write them down. A few weeks ago, we were talking about God and how good God is. And that God, He didn't have to be good, but He is good. He could be anything He wants, but He's good to us. And He stopped a minute and He said, You know what? Jesus isn't good. Good has limits. He's more than good. And and then another day, and I wrote it down too, he said, did you know Jesus makes himself easy to love? Talk about the things. Talk about the things that burn inside of you. And then finally, what I get from this story, talk talk to Christ. Talk to him. He, He ran up to these two people. He ran up. He made himself available to the same people who had abandoned him, who stood at a distance and would not get close when he needed them. They had run, and now they're running again. They'd stood far off. And that's the position that many people assume with Jesus. Arms linked, far off. In this account of Jesus running up, making himself available to them, Coming up to them. It's the Greek word, engisas. It's a very special word that's used of the coming of the kingdom of God. He came to them like the kingdom comes. It's a special word that's used of Jesus coming into Jerusalem for the last time. It's the word that's used of Jesus coming in his second coming when redemption draws near. When Jesus draws near, To us, there is so much more happening than we realize. He brings so much more than we know. But that's what the incarnation is all about. Spanish speakers will see a word they know in there, incarnation, flesh. God becomes flesh. He becomes the God-man. And why does he do that? Because it's a cute parlor trick? No, he does that so that we can know him. 
and he can get close to us so that he can draw near. That's why he became one of us. That's what it's all about. And he has so much to say, and he has so much to show you. Talk to Christ. Thinking of another older friend. Actually, he was former pastor of this church decades ago. He's now with Christ, but the last several months of his life, I, I would visit him all the time. He was bedfast most of the time. Couldn't get out of bed. And one day I came in to see him, and I, I was embarrassed that I had picked that day and that time because I realized I had interrupted his prayer time, and I felt bad. He did his best to make me feel good. I, I was standing there thinking, why should you stop talking to Jesus to talk to me? Really, that's how I felt. He was so deep into it, but he, he told me that day, he said, let me tell you something. He said, the things that God is showing me as I'm laying here in this bed, I can't even tell you what I'm seeing. Talk to Christ. He's got so much to show you. He invites us. He says it this way. I, I want you to come boldly to me. Boldly. You don't have to crawl. You don't have to duck. Come boldly. There's an old song that pictures Jesus saying to us, I, I miss my time with you. And he does. It's one of the tragedies of our day. I'm not sure why it has to be this way, but Maybe it's because we see ourselves as consumers. I consume stuff. Or maybe it's because we're more concerned with results than we are with relationships. But there are many friends of Jesus that in our day are very happy to be blessed by Him. And who would not be? The job that I prayed for, it happened. The raise that I prayed for, it comes through on time. The, the, the health miracle that you cried out for when you're flat on your back in pain that you get other people to pray with you for as well. It happens and you're well again. And that broken relationship, it's restored. Jesus did it. And that dirty place, that broken place, that wounded place that's deep in your heart, it's taken away. It's erased. And now there's peace and there's joy. He does all that. But I've noticed that in our day, maybe more than any other, God's people take the blessing and they run. They run. One of the sadder stories you'll read happened to Jesus. He's approached by ten disfigured, ghoulish-looking people that have a disease. Today we call it Hansen's disease. In those days they called it leprosy. The problem with leprosy, Hansen's, is the nerve endings, they degenerate to the point that you can't feel. And so you don't know that you're picking up something that's way too hot, and it destroys your skin. You don't know that you're grabbing the shovel way too hard. You don't know that you're washing your face with the cloth, and you're rubbing the cells of your face off. Added to that, there's a speed-up that your skin is actually degenerating and ears disappear and eyelids and noses fall off, fingers and toes. Well, ten of those ghoulish-looking men approach Jesus. 
and they wanted to be healed, and he said, I'll do it. Turn around and go back into town, and by the time you get there, the job will be done. So they take him at his word, and they spin around, and they head back to town, and sure enough, as they're walking and they're talking, they look at one another, and the skin is restored. It's like a baby's. The noses are back. The ears are in place. They're not disfigured. They're not deformed. And they're ecstatic. And they begin to run, probably back home, to the families that they've been ostracized from for who knows how long. They run back into town, all except one of them. He remembers, and he goes back, and he falls at Jesus' feet just to say thank you. It's a beautiful story up to that point until Jesus asked another one of his questions. Where are the other nine? I healed them too. We have the tendency to do the very thing that breaks the heart of Christ, and that's take the blessing and run. And when he asks questions like, where are the thanks? Where is the gratitude? Where are you now that I've helped you? Why aren't you showing up anymore? Why haven't I heard from you? I miss my time now with you. There really is no good answer for a Savior who's given everything. So we wrap this up. I want you to play a what-if game with me. I like spending time with children, and I'll tell you why. One of the reasons is because they can still imagine things. It's one of the tragedies as we get older. We think we, sh we should stop pretending. We should stop dreaming. So I want you to play a what-if game with me. I want you to imagine this. What if the phone, the cell phone, the tablet, what if they are shut down? And, and, and what if the hurry and the busy that is just part of our life that is not of the devil but in fact is the devil, what if all that busyness and all of that hurry and all of that activity, what if it could be escaped for just a while, little while every day? And what if you took that found time and no agenda, no requests, you just wasted time with Jesus every day? I said something last week that stayed with me anyway. You may have forgotten it, but it stayed with me. One day Jesus is approached by a broken woman. She's broken physically. She's broken emotionally. She's broken morally. She's broken spiritually. She's broken. Her reputation is shot. And that's why Jesus finds her in the hottest part of the day, drawing water. Everybody else has been there early in the morning, but she wants to avoid the humiliation this day. So she comes at noon, and she finds Jesus there, and they begin to talk. And Jesus tells her something in that conversation that's intensely private, that has never been shared with anybody else. He tells this broken woman of all people, he shares with her a secret that is known only within the Trinity, that's shared only by Father, Son, and Spirit. And until he says it to her, nobody else on the planet is aware. And he says, did you realize 
that every day, all day, God is seeking, searching, seeking, looking to and fro, looking this whole planet wide for people that will spend time with Him, who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Let's talk to Him. What if we decide to do just that, to find time every day just to waste it with Him, just to talk with Him? Jesus, this happened. How does that affect you? Jesus, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? Jesus, I've got this wound inside of me. Jesus, I've got some time. How should I spend it? Jesus, I've got a gift. How should I use it? Jesus, I love you. I just want you to know that. Let's talk with him. Because he's alive. He's well. He's loose in our world. And he wants to spend time with us. Why don't we give him what he wants? Somebody said to me the other day, well, I don't believe in God. I told him, I said, you just need to talk to the Lord. He said, I don't believe in God. I said, well, your problem is you're confusing believe and know. I can understand that you don't know God. You don't know that he's there. I, can, I get that. There are days that I don't know he's there. But belief, that's got nothing to do with what you know. That's a choice. I choose to believe. And then he takes that little thin thing, belief, which ain't much. That's why he described it as a grain of a mustard seed. He takes that little thing called belief that is very thin. And it's not the same as knowing. And he says, that's all I need. Thank you very much. And he turns our life upside down. Why don't you stand with me? You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.